Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. Pageantry and festivities had been in full swing since Christmas, when the court had dressed in outlandish masks and costumes. Aristocratic revellers paraded before one another disguised as rabbits, dragons, pheasants, and swans, while the king and his knights dressed in great green robes and peacock feathers. Once Christmas was over, a calendar of tournaments was organized. Jousts and romantic plays and games were held at Reading, Bury St. Edmunds, Lichfield, Eltham, Windsor, Canterbury, and Westminster between February and September. At each tournament the king paid close attention to the glamour of the spectacle. Always it was lavish, with the royal family appearing in fine robes of purple, dazzling with pearls and diamonds sewn in intricate patterns on their sleeves and chests. Occasionally it was surreal. At one tournament the king dressed as a giant bird, at another he decked his team out in matching blue and white uniforms, perhaps to recall the fleur-de-lis he had appropriated from the French arms. At Lichfield he fought under the arms of one of his veteran knights, Sir Thomas Braddiston, a lavish chivalrous display of faux humility and comradeship. A love of chivalry and showmanship lay at the heart of Edward's whole being, and he made sure to parade his famous prisoners in high style. King David II of Scotland and all the captive nobility of Paris were given fine clothes and bathed in the warm munificence of the king's generosity. Edward's large royal family was maturing even as it continued to multiply. Although Edward was only thirty-five and Queen Philippa two years younger, they already had nine children. They ranged from Edward of Woodstock, who at eighteen was now a war hero and a warrior to his bones, to William of Windsor, a babe in arms born in June, who would not live to adulthood. Edward of Woodstock, the Black Prince, basked in his father's affections, stepping into the vacuum left after the death of William Montagu, Earl of Salisbury, following a jousting match in 1343. For the time being he was the only one of the king's sons of martial age, and he had played both a political and a military role in the French wars. Lionel of Antwerp was nine, John of Gaunt eight, and Edmund of Langley seven. One further boy, Thomas of Woodstock, would be born in 1355. The king and queen also had four girls. Isabella, sixteen, and Joan, fifteen, had grown up in the same household as the Black Prince, along with their cousin, Joan of Kent. Mary and Margaret, three and two respectively, were toddlers in 1348. Having begun his drive for European glory by adopting a claim to the French throne, Edward had in the late 1340s begun to add another strand to his strategy. He planned to knit the family deeper into the fabric of European aristocracy by contracting dynastic matches for his children. No Plantagenet king since Henry II had sired so many children who grew to adulthood. Although Lionel of Antwerp had been betrothed at three to an heiress of the earldom of Ulster, Edward saw opportunities further afield for his children, particularly the girls. So it was that as the tournament season reached its peak in August 1348, his second daughter Joan prepared to take her leave of the family and begin a new life as bride to Peter, son of King Alfonso XI of Castile. 
The Plantagenets had roots in Castile. Henry II's daughter Eleanor had been married to Alfonso VIII, and their granddaughter, also named Eleanor, had returned to England as the beloved queen consort to Edward I. It was an illustrious marriage for the fifteen-year-old Joan, and preparations for her departure were made with appropriate ostentation. Joan was dispatched from Portsmouth with four heavily armed ships to carry her attendants and belongings. Her wedding dress gives us a clue to the astonishing splendour in which she was expected to represent her dynasty. She was to be married in a gown made from four hundred and fifty feet of racamatise, a thick silk interwoven with strands of golden thread. Her first port of call was Bordeaux, where she was to disembark before travelling south to Castile. Aboard the ships were a talented Spanish minstrel sent as a pre-wedding gift by the groom, two senior royal officials, and one hundred royal archers. There may have been a truce in operation, but the Channel and Gascony were still war zones. The mayor of Bordeaux, Raymond de Biscal, stood at the harbour waiting anxiously for his guests to arrive. The moment Joan's ships hove in sight he issued a dire warning to the passengers and crews. The town was in the grip of a deadly plague. It was not safe for the royal party to disembark. Everyone on board the ships would have heard of the disease that had swept in little more than three years from the Asian steppe to the heart of Europe. The continent was already reeling from its effects. The French called it la très grande mortalité. The English translated it as the huge mortality. It was unfortunately an accurate description of the disease that historians since the sixteenth century have called the Black Death. Its coming against the background of the vicious Valois-Plantagenet war transformed medieval lives and minds. Tens of thousands had been killed by war along the villages of the Seine, among the vineyards of Bordeaux, before the forest of Crecy, and in front of the gates of Calais. The Black Death would annihilate millions, with no regard for where it found them. Already the plague had ripped through Cyprus, Sicily, the Holy Land, and the Italian states. It reached France through Marseille during the winter, and spread north and south at an unstoppable pace. It slashed south through Aragon towards Castile, and north to Rouen and Paris. Philip VI fled the capital, but his queen, Joan the Lame of Burgundy, died of the plague on September 12th. Black flags were raised over villages as the disease reached them. Warning off visitors was the only precaution. The royal party had come from a country as yet untouched by the scourge that had ravaged the rest of Europe. They brushed Mayor Biscal and his warnings aside. The English party believed God had granted them so many victories since 1340. Perhaps the princess and her advisers also believed they might be spared this latest threat. They landed in Bordeaux and disembarked to the town. In mid-August one of the party, Andrew Ulford, a veteran of Crecy, contracted the disease that had been sweeping across Western Europe at a pace of two and a half miles a day since the autumn of 1347. While Edward's family enjoyed the glorious carousal of the tournament life, Ulford lay in the Chateau de Lombriere and suffered the grim descent into death shared by millions of other Europeans. A typical plague victim developed large, tuber-like buboes on the skin. They started the size of almonds and grew to the size of eggs. They were painful to the touch and brought on hideous deformities when they grew large. A bubo under the arm would force the arm to lurch uncontrollably out to the side. Sighted on the neck, it would force the head into a permanently cocked position. The buboes were frequently accompanied by dark blotches known as God's Tokens, an unmistakable sign that the sufferer had been touched by the angel of death. Accompanying these violent deformities, the victim often developed a hacking cough that brought up blood and developed into incessant vomiting. He gave off a disgusting stench which seemed to leak from every part of his body, his saliva, breath, sweat, and excrement stank overpoweringly, and eventually he began to lose his mind, wandering around screaming and collapsing in pain. Alfred died on August 20th, his fate sealed from the moment he walked into a plague zone. Other members of the royal party were quick to succumb. 
On September the 2nd, Princess Joan died. She never wore her beautiful wedding dress or reached her husband in Castile. Instead, she died a bloody, stinking death at fifteen years of age, on the cusp of womanhood. She had only a small measure of relief in dying a virgin and not a pregnant wife. Expectant mothers invariably gave birth during their death throes. September 1348 was a grim month for Edward III. Word reached England that his daughter was dead around the same time that the Black Death began to grip the southern counties. Then he heard the news that his baby son, William of Windsor, was also dead at only three months. The infant was given a full state funeral, a dignity never afforded to Joan, whose body was mysteriously lost in Bordeaux and never recovered. To lose two children in a month was heartbreaking for the king and queen, but there was little time for personal grief, as the realm was cast suddenly and violently into a state of utter devastation and despair. The Black Death tore through the population. It leapt from its entry point, a ship that docked at either Southampton or Melcombe Regis, now part of Weymouth in Dorset, and brought the first cases to England, to Wiltshire, Hampshire, and Surrey. On October 24th, the Bishop of Winchester wrote that the plague had made a savage attack on the coastal area of England, and that he was struck with terror at the thought of the diseases spreading. But spread it did. Between 1348 and 1351, many villages lost between one-third and one-half of their populations, the devastation of the plague coinciding with a terrible moraine among sheep to add to the misery. The chronicler Henry Knighton wrote that there was no memory of death so stern and cruel since the time of Vortigern, king of the Britons, in whose day, as Bede testifies, the living did not suffice to bury the dead. Settlements particularly weakened during the floods and the great famine of 1315 to 1322 were wiped out completely. The great death spared no one by virtue of faith or class. From princesses like Joan to beggars who bled and vomited to death in the streets, there was no avoiding it. Edward might destroy the armies of Philip VI, but he was helpless against those of the bacterium Yersinia pestis. The Order of the Garter On April 23, 1349, St. George's Day, Edward was hosting a tournament for the Knights of the Realm. The Black Death was ravaging his country, but the king would not be distracted from his favourite pastime. He hosted a festival of jousting and prayer at Windsor, in the castle where he had been born, and where he was planning a series of elaborate building works to begin the following year. The twenty-five men invited to the jousts were largely veterans of the French wars. They included the Black Prince, the Earls of Lancaster, Warwick, and Devon, Roger Mortimer, who would soon regain his grandfather's title as Earl of March, William Montague's son, also called William, who was now the new Earl of Salisbury, and other royal companions and comrades. The form of the tournament had been fixed in advance. The knights would divide into two teams of thirteen and ride against each other until one side was victorious. On this occasion there was added spice. The Earl of Salisbury and his steward, Sir Thomas Holland, were riding on opposite teams. These two were in the unusual position of being married to the same woman, Edward's cousin Joan of Kent. Joan, a radiant twenty-year-old of royal blood, had grown up with the Black Prince. She was a granddaughter of Edward I's, and Froissart called her the most beautiful woman in England. Joan's father, the Earl of Kent, had been executed on the orders of Roger Mortimer when she was just two. She had been adopted by Queen Philippa, and had grown up in the royal household, where she met Holland. She had married him in secret when she was about twelve years old, and the marriage had apparently been consummated but since the nuptials had not been carried out under proper permissions, or perhaps because the relationship was genuinely clandestine, Joan had subsequently been given in an arranged marriage to Salisbury while Holland was away fighting on the continent. When Holland returned, he claimed her publicly, and Joan found herself in an awkward situation because both men professed to be her legal husband. She preferred Holland, but personal preference was not the determining factor in unions between the great families of the medieval aristocracy. 
the case was heading to the Pope for settlement. It was eventually decided in November 1349 for Holland. In the meantime, the rivalry between Joan's two husbands was fierce. With Joan a dazzling heroine preparing to watch her rivals clash in battle, the stage was set for an exciting spectacle. But there was more to single out this tournament, for this was the occasion on which Edward III had determined to launch a knightly institution that came to be known across the world. The tournament at Windsor marked the formal institution of the Order of the Garter, England's most exclusive knightly club, and one of Edward's most brilliantly realised acts of royal propaganda. The king, like his grandfather Edward I, was captivated by the Arthurian legend, with its heroic deeds, fearsome military reputation, and famous gentleness toward women and the stricken. Like his grandfather, he was determined that Plantagenet kingship should absorb and reflect the great values of the Arthurian world. In January 1344, as the Breton phase of the war with Philip was underway, he had held a tournament at Windsor to inaugurate a knightly society of the round table. The chronicler Adam Murrymouth wrote that the king made a great supper at which he began his round table, and received the oaths of certain earls and barons and knights whom he wished to be of the said round table. Then, Murrymouth says, the king issued instructions that a most noble house should be added to Windsor Castle, in which the said round table could be held at the time appointed. This noble house was to be made of stone, two hundred feet in diameter, perhaps with a tiled roof around the outside in the fashion of the later Elizabethan Globe Theatre. In the first year of construction, five hundred and seven pounds, seventeen shillings, and eleven and a half pence was spent. No expense was to be spared in the pursuit of Arthuriana. In 1345, Edward bolstered his project by ordering a search for the body of Arthur's supposed ancestor, Joseph of Arimathea. As war escalated in the mid-1340s, the round table project ran short of cash and stalled. The cost of the fighting in Brittany compelled all funds to be diverted to waging war. Five years on, however, Edward had not abandoned his ambitions to form an exclusive brotherhood through which he could bind the elite knights and noblemen of his realm to the crown. Throughout the tournament season of 1348, the king had been toying with the idea of creating an Order of the Garter. At Windsor in 1349, he formalised the idea and fixed the membership of the Order. The Garter was an odd item to symbolise what was in essence a club for men of war. The story was spread that the idea came spontaneously when the Countess of Salisbury dropped her garter, a decorative garment worn on the thigh during a dance, and Edward picked it up, saying, On y soit qui mal y pense, evil to him who thinks evil of it, and thus coining the Order's motto. But this tale is apocryphal, and probably muddles an allusion to Joan of Kent's scandalous marital situation with a saucy account of the royal court's romantic licentiousness. Edward's parties were famously louche, and this story found a willing audience among sniffy monastic types who saw decadence and scandal at the English court and shook their heads in disapproval. It is more likely that the idea of the garter came from Henry of Gromont, Earl of Lancaster, hero of the English war effort in Gascony and Calais, who had sported garters, then a knightly accoutrement, and only later an item of female dress, in his dandyish youth. The king had also worn garters encrusted with pearls and gold to tournaments at the beginning of his reign, in 1333 and 1334. By the time the order was founded, Lancaster was thirty-nine and Edward thirty-seven. Perhaps the emblem of the garter served two purposes, an allusion to the knightly prowess they saw in their earlier selves, as well as an in-joke about their wild, youthful days. Whatever the case, Edward was following European fashion. Orders of knights were founded throughout the mid-fourteenth century, following the example of Alfonso XI of Castile, who formed the Order of the Band in 1330. In the 1350s, Emperor Karl von Luxemburg of Germany formed the Society of the Buckle, and Count Amadeus of Savoy the Company of the Black Swan. In the 1360s, King Louis of Sicily founded the Society of the Knot, and John II of France the Company of the Star. 
Thereafter the trend proliferated. So the Order of the Garter was founded on St. George's Day, with solemn oaths sworn by the twenty-six founding members to hold a celebration on the same day each year, together if possible. Any member not able to attend at Windsor was to celebrate in the same fashion wherever he was in the world. The society formed a sacred bond. It was determined that new members could not be added until an existing member had died. Great soldiers like Sir Thomas Dagworth, Sir Walter Manny, and the Earls of Northampton and Huntingdon were not among the original twenty-six knights. All were in France when the founding tournament was fought, and they would have to wait for their membership, in Huntingdon's case until 1372. Dagworth died before he had the chance to receive the Order's famous robes. The Order of the Garter struck many contemporaries as crass and insensitive. At a time when England was ravaged by the Black Death and impoverished by the financial demands of war, to a chronicler like Henry Knighton it seemed the height of callousness for the king to indulge in carefree tourneying. But for Edward the order had a purpose beyond simple enjoyment and indulgence. Every Plantagenet king since John had been prevented from defending his foreign territories by knights and earls who chafed at the duty to serve abroad. Edward had been lucky to win victories that partly justified the massive expense and human cost of fighting in France. He knew his family's history. If God withdrew his favour and victories slowed, the realm would soon demand a good reason to bear arms overseas. The answer lay in making foreign service a badge of honour, not a tiresome holdover from the days of feudal service. Knighthood was expensive, uncomfortable, and perilous, so Edward would have to knit the knightly community of the realm around him by giving it a new sense of exclusivity. The Order of the Garter gave Edward a new caste through which to celebrate and reward knightly chivalry. It was a means of binding the king and his sons to the men they would lead into battle on the continent for decades to come. The exotic French motto reminded all who aspired to membership that aristocracy was a pan-European brotherhood. Having been forced to abandon his plans for a round-table house at Windsor, Edward now gave orders to establish a college church in the town. The chapel within the College of St. George would be the order's spiritual and ceremonial home. Work began in 1350, after a delay while the court waited for the worst ravages of the Black Death to recede, and it took seven years to complete, incurring as great a cost as some of Edward I's greatest Welsh castles. Sixty-five hundred pounds were spent at Windsor between 1350 and 1357, almost all of it on the chapel. To give the chapel a truly holy mystique, Edward gave it the Cross of Gneth, a fragment of the true cross taken from Flewellyn the Last during the final conquest of Wales in 1283. For centuries afterwards St. George's Chapel stood for the intoxicating blend of martial prowess, spiritual devotion, romantic gentility, and lavish ceremony cultivated by Edward and his companions. Edward combined the flair for visual and architectural magnificence of Henry III with the fearsome military capability of Edward I. Truly this was a high point of the Plantagenet family's history, visionary propaganda from a superbly assured king. Decade of Triumph During the early years of his life and reign, Edward III had cast himself in the Arthurian pageantry of his court as Sir Lionel, the humble knight of the round table, a comrade in arms who would fight shoulder to shoulder with his men. By the 1350s his achievements had overtaken his humility, and the king began to be represented as Arthur himself, ruling his glorious kingdom from the new Camelot, which was Windsor. The king had spent almost unimaginable sums of money on his wars, and they had brought him glory and prestige that reverberated across Christendom. England's prosperity was bound tightly to its fortunes in war. Edward reminded friends and rivals of the new military order by flying the arms of St. George wherever possible. The Red Cross fluttered on the masts of his naval fleet, led by the Cog Thomas and supported by dozens of other ships, which patrolled the Channel. He added St. George to the Great Seal of England alongside the Virgin Mary. In 1348 Edward felt sufficiently secure in his resurgent kingship 
to reject an approach by the electors of the German states to become the next Holy Roman Emperor. Relations with France and Scotland were now at the king's command. The English court teemed with well-born hostages. King David II of Scotland and the Counts of Ur and Tancarville led a large and valuable group of French and Scottish prisoners. Despite the ravages of the Black Death and the uncertainty it cast over large-scale military campaigning, Edward pursued both. Frequent sallies were undertaken across the Channel, some under his own command, others under trusted lieutenants like Henry of Gromont, Earl of Lancaster, who led a small expedition to Gascony during the winter of 1349-1350. to On December 24, 1349, as the court was beginning its Christmas celebrations at Havering in Essex, Edward III received alarming news. Calais was about to be betrayed to the French. With no time to raise an army, he enlisted his eldest son Edward and a small company of trusted soldiers, and sailed at once and in the utmost secrecy for France. By January 1st, 1350, Edward's crack force was at Calais, and had gained clandestine access to the town. Before dawn the next day, a treacherous Italian mercenary raised the French flag above the citadel of Calais, the signal for a band of French knights to storm in through the town gates. The king was waiting. He and his men fell upon the invaders, advancing under the arms of Sir Walter Manny, while Edward passed himself off as a simple knight to avoid detection and capture. Fierce hand-to-hand -hand combat broke out in the streets of Calais, as the king and his men battered their enemies back, shouting, "'Edward and St. George!' Within hours Calais was saved." The story of its defenders' daring and glamorous mission added to the burgeoning body of folklore attesting to the bravery of Edward III and the Black Prince. On August 22, 1350, Philip VI died. He was succeeded by his son, John II, the Duke of Normandy, who had fought against Lancaster in Gascony and led men into battle at Crecy. His accession as king coincided with a year-long truce between the kingdoms, and during the summer of 1350 Edward turned his attention to another one of England's continental rivals, Castile. The realm in the north of the Spanish peninsula was also ruled by a new king, Pedro I, the Cruel, and Edward was quick to talk up largely baseless rumours that Pedro wished to invade England. In actual fact he was engaged in a form of trade war. Castilian ships sailed through the Channel on their way to trade wool in Flanders, and made a vexing habit of attacking English ships on their way. For Edward this was pretext enough. As the sun was setting on August 29, 1350, a large English fleet of around fifty cogs met a fleet of more than twenty larger Castilian galleys in the waters off Winchelsea, a few miles east of Hastings on the southern coast of England. The English ships were commanded by the King, the Black Prince, and the Earls of Lancaster, Northampton, and Warwick. Together they drew the willing Castilians into a bloody sea-battle. Although the design of ships had improved in the last hundred years, medieval naval tactics in the rough seas north of the Mediterranean remained primitive, particularly when compared with those of the land armies, with their dismounted men-at-arms and mounted archers. The art of fighting actions in open water still amounted to little more than a water-borne melee, Edward's boats charged at the Castilian galleys like battering-rams, as his men threw sharp crackling-irons on the end of ropes or chains, designed to embed themselves in the sides of the ships and prevent them from sailing freely. Parties of knights then tried to forcibly board the enemy vessels, slay the sailors, and throw their bodies into the churning waters. Little attention was paid to the tactics of manoeuvring ships in formation or of attacking at a distance. Battle was given at close quarters and leaned heavily on chance. At Winchelsea this was very nearly fatal for the king. Amid the blast of trumpets and shouts of pain and rage, his cog was seriously, ultimately fatally damaged when it crashed into a galley. Only by fighting his way aboard and taking command of the enemy ship amid a hail of arrows and iron bars thrown down by Castilian defenders did Edward escape drowning. Meanwhile the Black Prince's ship, jousting at another Castilian vessel, was damaged just as seriously, and the Prince was rescued only by the arrival of Lancaster's ship. 
Finally, as darkness fell over the channel, an enemy ship very nearly succeeded in towing away an English vessel carrying many members of the king's household. One enterprising royal servant had the presence of mind to creep aboard the galley and cut through the halyard to bring down the sail and stop the galley from escaping with its valuable booty. Eventually, despite their escapades, the English won the day, capturing numerous galleys, destroying others, and hurling hundreds of stricken sailors into the pitiless sea where they drowned. In later years the Battle of Winchelsea became known as Les Espagnols sur Mer, the Spaniards in the Sea. It was a matter of great fortune that Edward and his captains and lieutenants emerged unscathed, but good luck was something that the King of England often banked on during his dazzling military career. The Castilian fleet was effectively put out of the Channel for years to come, while Edward's fleet established its hegemony, escorting merchant ships back and forth between Bordeaux and the thriving English ports of Bristol and London and the south coast. The king celebrated his victory by giving thanks at Thomas Becket's shrine in Canterbury, then headed to his northern estates to hunt. His lieutenants, meanwhile, returned to France to skirmish their way around the fringes of Aquitaine. The truce between England and France had expired, and several spectacular victories in Brittany and Gascony had left Edward effectively in charge of Aquitaine, Brittany, and the area around Calais by autumn 1352. In Scotland, a power vacuum in the absence of David II allowed English lords to extend their reach into the Scottish lowlands. For the next eight years Edward busied himself in the quest to make his dominance permanent. As military plans were made for an invasion of Scotland, Edward retained a firm grip on the government of England. The first wave of the Black Death had thrown England's labour economy into tumult, and the effects were worsened as the plague returned in waves throughout the 1350s, 1360s, and 1370s. Hundreds of thousands of workers died, and as a result wages threatened to soar. That would prove damaging, if not disastrous, to the class of knightly landowners, who sat in Edward's parliaments, granted his taxes, and served as royal officials in the localities. The crown, as the greatest landowner in England, would suffer similar losses should the cost of estate management rise too sharply. Reacting promptly to the threat, Edward instituted in 1349 the Ordinance of Labourers, which was ratified in Parliament as the Statute of Labourers in 1351. The labour laws set rigid schedules for wages for every class of worker imaginable, which kept them artificially deflated. Saddlers, skinners, white tours, cordwainers, tailors, smiths, carpenters, masons, tilers, shipwrights, carters, and all other artisans and labourers shall not take for their labour and handiwork more than what, in the places where they happen to labour, was customarily paid to such persons in the said twentieth year, 1347, and in the other common years preceding, read one typical clause of the statute. If any man take more, he shall be committed to the nearest jail. Lords were granted the right to compel labourers, whether legally free or unfree serfs, to serve them, while prices of foodstuffs were similarly kept down. Butchers, fishmongers, hostlers, brewers, bakers, pullers, and all other vendors of any victuals be bound to sell victuals for a reasonable price, read the statute. The statute of labourers was enforced with some vigour by the same class of men it was designed to protect. Commissioners were appointed to investigate excessive wages and prices, and for decades afterward their appearance in the localities to investigate breaches of the law and to fine offenders created a simmering class resentment between shire elites and the lower orders beneath them. This effect was redoubled by the fact that the Labour Commissions were one part of a radical overhaul of the whole system of local law-keeping, for which England's political classes had been waiting nearly half a century. Instead of relying on large, irregular circuits of judges touring the country, Edward began to use smaller, regular bodies made up of leading local landowners. They sat both on peace commissions as Justices of the Peace, or J.P.'s, the heirs to the Keepers of the Peace who had been established earlier in the reign, and on a raft of other local commissions, most notably those to enforce the labour laws. 
The sense that royal government was coalescing in the hands of a self-interested political class would cause violent social tension in later decades. In the short term, however, Edward's swift action to deal with the most obvious economic effects of the Black Death secured him the confidence of the class on which he relied heavily for war funding. With peace at home, Edward was able to concentrate on pushing toward a lasting settlement with France and Scotland. Part of the problem there was that Edward was not entirely certain what a perpetual peace should look like. He clung proudly to his dynastic claim to the French crown, but it was increasingly obvious that this was a lever by which to move negotiations in favour of a reconstituted Plantagenet empire. At peace talks held in Guine in 1354, Edward proposed to renounce his claim to the French throne in exchange for full English sovereignty over Aquitaine, Poitou, Anjou, Maine, Touraine, Limoges, and Pontieu, even before disputes over the lordship of Brittany, Normandy, and Flanders were settled. Subsequently, at a magnificent peace conference held under papal authority in Avignon during the winter of 1354-1355, Henry of Gromont, raised in 1351 to the rank of Duke of Lancaster and the Earl of Arundel, began negotiations from an even more aggressive position, demanding English control over Aquitaine, Poitou, Maine, Touraine, Anjou, Angoulême, Normandy, Pontieu, Quercy, and Limousin. It was hardly surprising, in the face of these onerous demands and Lancaster's bullish negotiation tactics, that the peace talks collapsed. John II's envoys argued that to grant away such vast swaths of France would put the king in breach of his coronation oath. Both sides prepared for the resumption of war, and by the autumn of 1355 Edward had two large invasion forces organized, one under his own command and another under that of his son, the Black Prince. The goal was to teach John II the same lessons his father had learned at Crecy and Calais in 1346 and 1347. Of the two armies that sailed for France in late 1355, only the Black Princes stayed very long. The king landed at Calais in late October, unsuccessfully petitioned John II to meet him in battle, and, scornful of the French king's refusal to fight, returned to England by November 12th. For the rest of the winter he concentrated on leading troops in a terrible chevauchée around the lowlands of Scotland, inflicting such misery on the local people, and putting so much of their land and property to the torch, that January 1356 became known as the Burned Candlemas. Yet the devastation caused in the lowlands could not compare with that wreaked upon southwestern France by the Black Prince and his companions. Throughout the spring of 1356 it became clear that a showdown between John II and the English was inevitable. The Black Prince had wintered at Bordeaux, and the frontiers of English Aquitaine were littered with armed companies, some in the pay of the Prince, others released from army service and operating as freebooters. In May, another English force under the Duke of Lancaster was sent to Normandy. It wreaked havoc in several important Norman towns before retreating from John's reach. There was widespread disgruntlement among the French aristocracy, and the king was beginning to face open opposition from his cousin Charles the Bad, King of Navarre and Count of the Norman province of Evreux, who wished to depose John II and place his eldest son the Dauphin, also called Charles, on the throne. Charles the Bad was arrested in April 1356 for his impertinence, but his brother Philip of Navarre crossed to England in August, held talks with Edward III at Clarendon, and paid liege homage to the English king as King of France and Duke of Normandy. The pressure on John to make a decisive move against the English was becoming intolerable. The moment arrived on September 19, 1356, in fields outside the city of Poitiers, traditionally the most important city in the Duchy of Aquitaine. The Black Prince's army, consisting of 6,000 to 8,000 English and Gascon men, was split, as was now conventional, into three divisions, with the Prince commanding the middle. The French outnumbered the English Gascon army by perhaps as much as two to one. Nevertheless, the English were well drilled and organized, in contrast with John II's undisciplined and fractured army. Although the French had learned some of the lessons of Crecy and were preparing to deploy their men-at-arms on foot in a defensive formation rather than waste them in suicidal cavalry charges, 
they lacked the leadership to turn their numbers to their advantage. As the prince's men traversed the French front line, two French commanders were goaded into attack. Traditional cavalry charges were sent against the English van and rearguards. They were slaughtered as they tried to cut through the thick hedges that lay between them and their enemies. It was the beginning of a day of unparalleled carnage for the French, one that ended in a defeat unrivalled until the Battle of Agincourt in 1415. During heavy fighting they lost more than two thousand men, including the Duke of Bourbon, the Constable of France, one of their two marshals, and the carrier of the Oriflamme, the sacred red battle-standard of the French army, which was said to have been dipped in the blood of Saint-Denis. Countless French noblemen were captured. They included the king's youngest son Philip, the Archbishop of Sens, numerous counts, the other marshal, and, most disastrous of all, John II himself. The English lost no more than a few hundred men, and took prisoners worth hundreds of thousands of pounds. It was the most crushing defeat ever inflicted by a Plantagenet prince on a French king, and it crowned forever the glorious military legend of the Black Prince. A banquet was given at the English camp following the victory. The legions of French prisoners were toasted and honoured with the greatest chivalric deference by the prince and his noble captains. John II was lauded as a great king who had fought more bravely than any other man on the field but beneath the knightly courtesy the political reality was clear. France was in crisis, while the English, who began to refer to the Black Prince informally as King Edward IV, were ascendant. The hostages taken at the Battle of Poitiers were sent back to the King in England, who began to plot their ransom, a deal that would finally achieve the aim of re-establishing the lost Plantagenet Empire in France. By January 1358, following long and complex peace negotiations, John II's ransom was set at four million gold ecus, an impossible £666,666, a ransom that, even allowing for inflation, made Richard the Lionheart's look puny. Alongside it was a draft Treaty of London, along much the same lines as the failed Treaty of Guine. Edward's price for abandoning his claim to the French crown was to be sovereignty over Aquitaine, Saint-Ange, Poitou and Limousin in the south, and Pontieu, Montreuil and Calais in the north. The treaty might have been sealed by both sides had events in France not sharply deteriorated. During the chaos that followed King John's capture, radical reformers chased the Dauphin from Paris, and Charles of Navarre, now freed from prison, offered a deal to the English in which France would be partitioned, with Edward taking the crown and around two-thirds of the realm's territory. In the summer of 1358 a mass popular rebellion known as the Jacquerie, Les Jacques was a contemptuous aristocratic nickname for peasants, tore through northern France, with the aim of destroying noblemen and knights, whom the peasants blamed for betraying the realm. Chroniclers reported ghastly atrocities as ordinary men and women took bloody revenge on their social superiors. One chronicler, Jean Lebel, records peasants killing a knight and roasting him on a spit, gang-raping his wife, and force-feeding the unfortunate lady and her children the roasted flesh of their husband and father. Another French chronicler, Jean de Venette, left a vivid description of the countryside during the late 1350s. He described the area of his birth near Compiègne, which had been ruined by relentless English attacks. The vines in this region were not pruned or kept from rotting, the fields were not sown or ploughed, there were no cattle or fowls in the fields, no wayfarers went along the roads carrying their best cheese and dairy produce to market, houses and churches no longer presented a smiling appearance with newly repaired roofs, but rather the lamentable spectacle of scattered smoking ruins to which they had been reduced by devouring flames. The pleasant sound of bells was heard indeed, not as a summons to divine worship, but as a warning of hostile intentions, in order that men might seek out hiding-places while the enemy were yet on the way. Every misery increased on every hand, especially among the rural population— yet their lords did not repel their enemies or attempt to attack them, except occasionally. By November 1358 Edward was no longer convinced that peace was the best option. 
He began to plan for a third massive invasion, and was only temporarily dissuaded by the personal pleas of his prisoner John II, who petitioned him successfully for a second draft to the Treaty of London. In this the king's ransom remained at four million ecus, but the list of territories to be awarded to the Plantagenets in full sovereignty now included Normandy, Anjou, Maine, Touraine, and Boulogne, along with the overlordship of Brittany. As the hundredth anniversary of the Treaty of Paris approached, Edward was pressing for its final obliteration and a return to the heyday of Henry II's and Richard I's supremacy over Philip Augustus. Unsurprisingly, the Second Draft Treaty of London was utterly rejected in Paris. In summer 1359, invasion plans were made. In October, the King, the Duke of Lancaster, and the Black Prince led an army of around 10,000 men split into three divisions, out of Calais and southwest toward Reims. It was the most provocative target they could have picked. Reims held the cathedral where French kings had been crowned since Louis I in 816. The town was just a few days' march from Paris. If it should fall to the English king, he would certainly have himself crowned as Edward I of France. Fortunately for the French, Reims was stoutly defended. Edward abandoned his attempt at a siege in January 1360, after spending just five weeks before its walls. He negotiated an alliance with the Duke of Burgundy, and set out for Paris, in the hope of drawing the Dauphin into a pitched battle. Wisely, the Dauphin refused to be tempted into following two previous generations of Valois kings, and risking his freedom and sovereignty against English men-at-arms and archers. He stayed in Paris, a city that even a buoyant Edward could not hope successfully to besiege, and in April the English king was forced to march his army, weakened by plague and tired from several months in the field, back in the direction of Brittany. As they marched back west, they were caught outside Chartres in a powerful thunderstorm, which destroyed a large part of the baggage train. Hailstones large enough to kill horses fell from the sky, in a day so ghastly it was later dubbed Black Monday. For once, fortune had turned against the King of England. There was to be no Crécy or Poitiers in 1360. Instead, peace talks were opened in the village of Bretigny on May 1st. Seven days later they had concluded. Edward accepted a treaty by which he took sovereign control of Aquitaine, Poitou, Saint-Ange, and Angoumois in the south, and Pontieu, Montreuil, Calais, and Guine in the north. He gave up his claim to the French throne, Normandy, and Brittany, and reduced John II's ransom to three million ecus. John agreed to stop supporting the Scots against the English, and Edward to cease aiding the Flemings, who regularly rebelled against France. Normandy, Maine, Anjou, and Touraine all remained part of the French kingdom. It was not the grand re-establishment of Henry II's empire that had once seemed possible, but it was a triumph nonetheless. Edward returned to England in time for Christmas in 1360, to proclaim and celebrate the peace, the achievement of almost everything for which he and his allies had fought for twenty-three long years. Parliament was called in January 1361, and duly ratified the peace. On St. George's Day at Windsor Castle in 1361, Edward's sons, Lionel of Antwerp, John of Gaunt, and Edmund of Langley, were all admitted to the Order of the Garter, in recognition of their service in the wars. Edward's youngest son, Thomas of Woodstock, born in 1355, had been the nominal regent of the realm during the king's more recent absences. The country was given over to celebrating the apparent end of a long and costly war. In France the mood was bleak. King John had been released on December 5, 1360, to return to France and raise his ransom, for which the first-ever gold franc, the franc à cheval, was minted. But the realm was devastated, overrun with English mercenary companies that had been disbanded from Edward's armies and were now in need of occupation. They found this chiefly in inflicting continued misery on the inhabitants of Brittany and the southwest, capturing villages and castles before selling them back to their unlucky inhabitants. While England basked in triumph, France lay ravaged, crippled for a generation by John II's ransom, and territorially dismembered. 
a high point in Plantagenet history had been reached. What was astonishing was the speed with which Fortune's wheel turned, and the Age of Glory fell spectacularly apart. Part 7 Age of Revolution, 1360-1399 My God, this is a strange and fickle land! Richard II, according to Adam of Usk the Family Business On November 13, 1362, Edward III celebrated his fiftieth birthday. As he faced old age, he could feel proud of his achievements. He was phenomenally rich, a powerful and famous king, who had shaped England in his own image, legal, cultural, military, and aesthetic. If he was riding toward the twilight of his years, the life expectancy for Plantagenet kings was around sixty, he was doing so in style. He and Queen Philippa lived in splendour and luxury. Enriched by the massive bounty and the large ransom payments he had won from the French, Edward led a truly regal existence. The kings and queens households were merged in 1360, in recognition of the fact, after the Treaty of Bretigny, that the king would no longer be travelling around makeshift camps on the continent. Thousands of pounds were spent on tournaments and jewels, falcons and dogs, fine clothes and lavish living. As the fortieth anniversary of Edward's accession approached, his court spent one of the first protracted intervals of peacetime in an endless round of feasting and partying. Much of the vast royal treasure was spent overhauling the king's residences, Windsor Castle was the showpiece. Directed by his talented, humble-born new minister William of Wickham, the king spent vast sums, £8,500 a year in the mid-1360s, redesigning Windsor as a monument to martial kingship and courtly love. Old buildings were torn down, and vast luxurious new royal halls, chapels and chambers were built in their place. Vaults and marbled cloisters connected splendid apartments. Queen Philippa alone had four personal chambers under construction, one for sleeping, a chapel for prayer, a third decked with mirrors, and a fourth for dancing. And this was only one of the royal homes, to be lived in when the king and queen were not at their leisure in any number of splendid palaces and hunting lodges dotted about the Thames Valley and the New Forest. Edward was not entirely self-indulgent. He thought a great deal of his people and the way they regarded him. Another severe wave of the Black Death returned to Europe between 1361 and 1364, and was particularly deadly to children. Amid this general misery, it befitted the king to try to make life a little easier for his traumatized subjects. The public celebrations of his birthday therefore centred on a meeting of Parliament dominated by knights, burgesses and citizens, and were orchestrated in a spirit of high royal generosity. The Parliament heard large numbers of petitions and sought to remedy as many complaints and grievances as possible. A statute of purveyance was finally granted, drastically limiting the most pernicious royal practice of requisitioning in wartime, by limiting the forced purchase of food and goods to the king, queen, and heir. Royal purveyors were now known as buyers, and they operated under a strict code of conduct. This was an easier concession for Edward to make in peacetime than in wartime, to be sure, but the fact that he made it suggested that he understood and was sympathetic to the hardships of his subjects. During the course of Edward's lifetime there had been an important shift in the fabric of life in his kingdom. The language of the realm was moving away from French and toward English. The native tongue, once considered a rude, barbaric dialect unfit for well-born mouths to speak or administrators to use, was now becoming commonplace. The king spoke it. All the aristocrats of the age understood it. Travelling minstrels singing the newly fashionable English ballads of Robin Hood did so in the native tongue. Rising dons like John Wycliffe, who was beginning to impress his colleagues at Oxford University in the early 1360s, came to translate the Bible into English, and in turn this led to the rise of Lollardy, a heretical movement in which personal interpretation of Scripture and the teachings of the Church was aided by their availability in the mother tongue. 
the age of the first great English vernacular poets, Geoffrey Chaucer, William Langland, John Gower, and the Pearl and Gawain poet, was dawning. In recognition of all this, Edward used his fiftieth birthday Parliament to usher in a new age of English speaking. The Statute of Pleading formally changed the spoken language of parliamentary address and arguments in the royal law courts from French to English. Records were still to be kept in Latin. It was another populist statute designed, as it said, to remedy a situation in which the people which do implead in the king's court have no knowledge or understanding of that which is said for them or against them by their sergeants, lawyers, and other pleaders. Finally, Edward turned his mind to his family. Now that he was fifty, it was time to look after the next generation. His final act in the birthday parliament was to honour his adult sons with lavish new titles and roles, setting them up to take the helm of the mighty land of England when he was gone. Nine of his twelve children had reached adulthood. By 1362, six of them were still alive. Young Joan had died in plague agonies during the Black Death, and when the second wave of the plague came back to England in 1361, it killed two of her sisters. The children's plague wiped out around a quarter of England's young people, including the seventeen-year-old Princess Mary and fifteen-year-old Princess Margaret. Only one daughter remained, Isabella, who was approaching her thirtieth birthday. She had hot-headedly refused to marry a Gascon lord proposed by her father, and had withdrawn herself for good from Edward's diplomatic plans, refusing to marry for anything but love. Despite the truculence of his last surviving daughter, Edward could still boast five healthy Plantagenet princes, and all but the seven-year-old Thomas of Woodstock were handsomely rewarded in 1362. The eldest, Prince Edward, heir to the throne and the finest soldier in England, had quite scandalously married his first cousin, Joan of Kent. According to the writer known as the Chandos Herald, who was a servant of Prince Edward's best friend, John Chandos, Joan was a lady of great worth, very beautiful, pleasing, and wise. Not everyone was so kind, and indeed the marriage was very much for love rather than political gain. Joan had been married twice before. She already had five children by Sir Thomas Holland, and her other former husband, the Earl of Salisbury, was still alive. She was addicted to jewels and finery, and brought no beneficial foreign alliances. The marriage was set to afford the Black Prince the dubious status of being the first Plantagenet king to be married to a divorced mother since Henry II had wed Eleanor of Aquitaine. The union was also technically forbidden by the Church, because first cousins were well inside the prohibited degrees of consanguinity. Nevertheless, Prince Edward had been well rewarded by his father. At the time of his wedding he was Earl of Chester, Duke of Cornwall, and Prince of Wales, and his income exceeded eight thousand pounds. Since he and Joan had married, they had been living just south of London at Kennington, in a brand-new palace designed by the master mason Henry Yeverley, who had become the most brilliant builder of the age. Shortly before the king's birthday, Edward awarded them a new home. He settled the Duchy of Aquitaine on his eldest son, who had won the greatest battle of the age at Poitiers on its northern borders. With this gesture the king was sending an unequivocal message. The Black Prince was ready to switch from leading campaigns to running a powerful fiefdom, and his time for kingship would arrive shortly. Edward and Joan moved to the duchy in February 1363, and based their household mostly in Angoulême and Bordeaux. Edward had plans for his other sons, too. He had read William of Newburgh's twelfth-century chronicle of early Plantagenet history, and now, as his birthday approached, he began to put into place his own version of the grand familial strategy that Henry II had conceived for his own children two hundred years earlier. Each one was to be awarded a landed inheritance in a different corner of Europe. On his birthday itself, which fell on November 13th, Edward came to the final day of Parliament with his third and fourth sons, John of Gaunt and Edmund Langley, and proceeded to bestow marvellous new titles upon them. Parliament records give us a laconic clue to the magnificence of the ceremony. And then the Chancellor said to the great men and commons that our Lord the King had discussed with some of the great men how God had truly blessed him in many ways, 
and especially in the begetting of his sons who were of legal age, and he therefore willed their names and honour to increase, that is to say that his son Lionel of Antwerp, then being in Ireland, should be named Duke of Clarence. Lionel was abroad, but John of Gaunt and Edmund Langley were present, and they received their honours in person. And then our said lord the king girded his said son John with a lance, and put on his head a fur cap, and on top a circle of gold and precious stones, and named and made him Duke of Lancaster, and gave him a charter of the said name of Duke of Lancaster. And then he girded his said son Edmund with a lance, and named and made him Earl of Cambridge, and gave him a charter of the name of Earl of Cambridge. Duke of Clarence, Duke of Lancaster, Earl of Cambridge, these were grand titles indeed, and each of them bore a notional responsibility for a different corner of the Plantagenet dominions. Lionel of Antwerp's title was rather novel. The Duchy of Clarence was an Irish title that brought with it lands on the west coast. The name Clarence referred to the Clare family from which the lands were inherited. When joined to the earldom of Ulster, which Lionel held by virtue of his marriage to Elizabeth de Burgh, the Countess of Ulster, the new Duchy of Clarence formed the greatest power-block in Ireland. By the time his title was announced in Parliament, Lionel was already in Dublin, having been appointed Lieutenant of Ireland in 1361, and given fifty knights, three hundred men-at-arms, and five hundred and forty mounted archers, with provision to raise more troops in